Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Warlord Games official podcast. My name is Brad, and this is the podcast where we talk about all of the awesome games that Warlord puts out for us to enjoy and play. It is an exciting day for me on the Warlord cast because we get to talk to one of my favorite guests of all time, the man, the myth, the legend. He is behind some of the greatest games in gaming history. He is a really nice guy, and I know he hates that I'm waffling on with this. Rick Priestley, the godfather of all wargaming. Welcome back. Brad. To the <laughs> cast. It's, it's good to be here. I, I almost dozed off during that uh, uh, during your appraisal. Yeah. I thought, oh, no. Sorry, Rick. I can't help myself. Every time you came on, I just think of all the books that I have behind me that have your name on the spine. And I start thinking wow, the man's a talented guy, and I can't believe he's actually talking to me. I'm a little starstruck. Even though we've talked many times in the past, it's always a pleasure to have you on. We, we have, and it's always a pleasure to be here, Brad. Yeah. I think the fact you've got so many books with my name on is more of a testament to the fact I've been I've been around writing for so very, very long. <laughs> well, you know, they're all yeah. worth reading, and they're all worth having. Uh, speaking of which, we are going to talk about one of your newest books. In fact, your newest book very shortly. But as uh, we do have requests on this show, uh, I have had many requests over the years to have me ask you about a game that people love to talk about, which is Bolt Action. I know you had the fingers in the pie, so to speak, with Bolt Action version one. You worked with Alessio at the original development of Bolt Action as a concept. For those who are not familiar, because a lot of people have come to Bolt Action in recent years, particularly, you know, in and after the COVID lockdowns, people were painting World War II models, often going back to things that brought them joy or things that they were familiar with from their childhood. A lot of people went back to World War II movies and books, and then that sparked their interest in Bolt Action. Can you talk to us a little bit about your role in helping Alessio develop Bolt Action version one? Sure. Well, I always think of uh, Bolt Action as Alessio's game, really. I mean, I did help, um, and uh, I, I was specifically commissioned at the time to write the background section for it. Mm -hmm. But um, I obviously got drawn into the playtesting, and mm -hmm. uh, as a representative of Warlord, sometimes I, I was um, asked to... Uh, deal with some specific elements of the game that Alessio was struggling with. It's, it's worth bearing in mind that when Alessio undertook that commission, he he, he had never played um, historic, well, World War II-based historical war games at all. He really didn't have much background in World War II because being Italian, as opposed to British, um, he hadn't grown up quite so soaked in the... Uh, I was saying mythology, but the um, the adventurous sense of World War II. I mean, growing up in in Britain in the 1960s, it was just a feature of comics. It was a feature of TV, and it was just everything. Every boy of my generation mm -hmm. knew what a Spitfire was and what a Fokker Wolf was, and so on and so forth. And you know, quite in, in quite a lot of detail too, the material facts of the war, and then that sense of adventure which you get in films like Where Eagles Dare, for example. Fantastic uh, film. We just all grew up with it. So to us, mm -hmm. it was just bread and butter. Uh, it was nothing unusual. But to Alessio, it was something quite new. So, you know, we had to, I'd say, steer him through. We guided him through the process a little bit. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if you know, but um, in Britain, in the, uh, I think it was in the 90s, really, and then the, there was a program, a comedy program called LOLO. Mm -hmm. No, I don't know if you've ever seen it or if this makes any sense to mm -hmm. many of our listeners. But it was a, a, a it was actually a skit on a, a serious program called Secret War, which was about the French resistance. Um, but it's got uh, all these comedic characters in it, and they're all undertaking rather um, archetypal roles. So the Germans behave a certain way, and there's an Italian captain in it. And uh, so we, we forced poor old Alessio to watch all this. And he, uh, <laughs> uh, to, his, to his credit, he found it hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I love that. The, uh, the, here, is, uh, here is your research that you must do for this game. Watch, watch Hello, Hello. Hello. That's right. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. 
Well, um, since that time, I know for from our prior conversations, you haven't necessarily played a ton of Bolt Action version two until recently. Now, recently, I know that initially you had a Soviet army, and recently you've been messing around with it a bit, and I've been messing around with Soviets sure. a bit. And people always ask me to ask you, oh, what does Rick play in Bolt Action? Well, today we're going to pull back the cover or pull back the curtain and talk about uh, Soviets a little bit. Now, neither Rick nor I claim to be experts on Soviets and Bolt Action, but we are both longtime Soviet players. Uh, and I've recently uh, finished yet another Soviet army. So uh, there are there is some chat to be had. Now, Rick, I have just finished a Soviet naval brigade force, uh, the Black Death. I have uh, a wall of black infantry um, with, you know, the 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 tall boots and the the black garments and backing that up with uh, quite a few vehicles. I've got, you know, some SU-76s, SU-76I, and a couple of artillery pieces. But I wanted to do something that was a little different and looked, you know, dark and grim on the tabletop. Now, I understand that you did the exact opposite. Yeah, that's right. Um, To me, the reason I went for Soviets is because the very first war game I ever played, the proper war game, was um, Charles Grant's battle in which he uses airfix Russians mm-hmm. as his core troop type. So um, I, I, and I replicated that when I was a kid. So I, I had the, uh, the the Russian forces were the basic forces, but of course it was a very generic game. So you, you ended up having to convert things. For example, the Russians were allowed to have bazookas, and bazookas formed part of just every unit because they didn't really have. But right. um, I had to convert them all and everything like that. And uh, I had to convert Russian, um, uh, I think, submachine gunners into radio operators and so on and so forth. So I, I, I quite enjoyed doing all that when I was a kid. I, uh, I liked the fact that I was copying something else. You know, do it like this. Exactly. Um, so when I, I, I put a bolt action army together, I was, I was kind of drawn to do the same thing. And almost create a generic World War II force or a you know an army man force, mm-hmm. which just happened to be using Russians. So whereas you've gone for something very specific and historically um, focused on the um, uh, uh, on the naval troops, That's right. I've gone for what I would just call Russians in um, I think they're mostly summer uniforms. I don't even like the guys in the winter uniforms. You know the padded jackets. Mm-hmm. I, I I have some mostly because they. They come in the plastic set, mm-hmm. but I've tended to where I've got a choice. I've gone for the straight summer uniform throughout and core troops. So um, rifle, basically, basically rifle squads or um, actually like machine gun squads too, because you do get two, two, you get two like machine guns in a like machine gun squad, mm-hmm. which is a little heavy for a historical Soviet um, force but it's comparable to a lot of the other forces you'll be fighting, particularly the Germans. That's right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how you feel about that. I, t- I tend to think that the submachine, the machine guns, the light machine guns are the, um, are the killers. Yeah. And if you can back that up with some hip- substantial rifle fire, which you get with the Soviets because you get big units or can, mm-hmm. then that can make a lot of difference, you know, a decent volley and you can leave the enemy in, no better condition than a dog of uh, than a, a bowl of dog meat, you know, is that sort of thing. I try to mix light machine guns in. Now, I know that that isn't always the most popular meta option. That you know, some people say they're inefficient. Uh, I actually really like to have a couple of large or reasonably sized infantry squads with light machine guns as part of what I call the anchor of my force. Um, I very much believe in sort of an anchor and a pincer. Um, or the hammer and anvil, I guess, kind of philosophy yeah. for army design. So I'll have two to three, probably three squads that'll reach out and touch someone at the least. And then I'll have a couple of anchor squads to hold objectives because a lot of the games that we end up playing in bolt action, of course, are objective based. And you always need to have something to hold off opponents. And I like to have the range and the extra shots that an LMG provides yeah. so you can actually get those pins out. 
Um, and all it takes is a bad order check. And then all of a sudden somebody's bogged down in the open and then yeah. they are dog meat because then I'm for, you know, focusing all my fire on them. Yes. They're probably, if you went point for point for some of the other things in the game may not be as efficient, but I, I see them as a tool and I see them yeah. as a tool that I like to use uh, for a particular purpose. And I think they serve that, serve that purpose beautifully. Um, yeah, but, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I, I, I also, I don't go for a, um, a, a, a hot, I don't deliberately design a force that's um, uh, overly powerful in a particular circumstance. I, I, mm. I develop a very, it's a very generalized army yeah. and it's adaptable. Um, exactly. Because yeah. so many of the missions are varied and you need a different force. Sure. And I really like that about bolt action. And uh, there's yeah. just so many good missions, both in the community and in the basic rulebook themselves, that you can really, uh, you really do need to have a force that can pivot depending on the opponent and depending on the game that, you, especially if you're trying to, you know, take, take, be in it to I don't want to say be in it to win it, but you know to have a chance in any given game. If you go too far down uh, a particular, you know, lean into a particular direction too far, you can really disadvantage yourself sometimes. Um, and yes, skew lists can be fun, and I am guilty of playing them. But yeah, it is nice to also have, you know, a generalist list that allows you to do many things, right? I think so. I, th I think the other element that I quite enjoy the mortars. Um... Mm -hmm. I, I tend to play with more mortars than perhaps most people would. And I, I know that they're, you know, you, you throw out some shots and nothing ever hits. But <laughs> yes. You throw out enough shots, something will hit. And once mm -hmm. you've hit with a mortar, you then continue to hit much more easily. Yes. So it, 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 it's, it, it's one of those things which denies position. Mm -hmm. The enemy suddenly has to start moving. Uh, and uh, that, that, can that can I say win you the game, but it can certainly um, uh, discombobulate the enemy, which is entertaining in itself. Exactly, it's one of those things that you don't even need to hit with it. No, because once you start ranging in a couple of times and someone's hit with a mortar, you know, a lot of players when they when you start to get ranged in, will then move the thing that is being ranged in on, and you know the people who's who are firing the mortars can feel bad. Oh, I didn't kill anything. No, but you prevented them from holding that position for a turn. And that might mean, you know, they're in a position where they're not taking an objective anymore, or, you know, they have any time that I'm making my opponent make a decision, they have a great opportunity to make a mistake. Um, yes. Yeah. You can, you're controlling the game. It's, um, mm -hmm. it's like in go where you have the dominant, in, in the game go where exactly. you have the dominance called sente and um you're you're forcing the opponent to move so, uh, and once we do whilst you're doing that you, you you can be setting up a position so you force someone to move out of the position and simultaneously draw fire into around them um you know you can you can do quite well with that sort of thing um and I, and it's quite fun you know it, it's it feels like um a tactical game rather than just wheeling some huge, great, monstrous beast up to the enemy and letting them have it, which is, uh, I don't know, it, it, it's a game of sorts, I suppose. But it, it is. It is. <laughs> Look, yeah. and every now and then it is nice to put a KV2 on the tabletop. But uh, speaking of oh. which, uh, the next question that I was meaning to ask is this. Uh, if you, I guess, not if you could, because obviously when you play games, you you pull out different tanks for different purposes or depending on the mission or the person you're playing. But um, do you have any favorite tanks in the Soviet list? Because the Soviets do have a wonderful wide list of vehicles to choose from. Yeah. Uh, I have some faves. Do you? Do you know, it's a funny thing. I used to always go for a T-3485, which is quite a heavy choice, really. Mm -hmm. But the reason was because that's the tank I had. You know, I'd put one together and I quite liked it as a model. And um, so I liked to field it, but it's a little bit overly heavy for most games. Mm -hmm. um, so I put together um, a BT, BT5, I think, or BT7. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I started using that, but and but that's that's the other way around. It's almost a little bit too weak. <laughs> I was going to say that's a very big difference, Rick. You're going from what a heavy AT gun to a, a light, light AT gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, and um, so uh, the last game I played, I thought, right, I'll, I'm I'm going to figure it with two light tanks. I, I actually got a, a T70, which is a lovely little model. It's a beautiful it model. Mm-hmm. I really like it. Really it really is. Yeah. Um, got taken out the first shot of the game. <laughs> oh, curses. Um, it, was it that the curse of the new model? I find that whenever I've spent a gross amount of time building and painting something, as I'm prone to do, the very first time I ever put it out, it is invariably killed. Yes. In first activation. Well, I, I matched it with a uh, armored car, the um, is it BA6, the armor, mm-hmm. which is essentially the same firepower, you know, same turret as a um, BT tank, I would think. That is. Um, plus, um, it's, uh, Soviets call them heavy armoured car, but they're not really all that heavily armoured. No. And it's, um, yeah, I, and I was trying to kind of use the two lights. Unfortunately, I think, what did my, what did Alessio choose? Alessio chose something really heavy. Mm. I couldn't get near it. Um so yeah, I don't know. I'm still, I'm still on both. I, I'm still trying to find my perfect tank. I've got KVs. I find, I, I think they're too big. They're too heavy for a smallish game. Yeah. So I got a whole ba- a batch of KVs when Warlord were um, uh, updating the model. John brought all the old models around and said, "Oh, you have Soviets, don't you? Right? You want these?" And there was like a whole batch of KV ones and KV twos. Oh, so amazing. I've got. More than I've ever been able to field, including some that I built myself already. You know, so yeah. um, uh, so 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 the one I've got the most of is KVs, but I don't really ever get the chance to use them. Again, beautiful tank KV one. What a fantastic looking thing it is! Right, and the heaviest armor in the world, not yeah. the heaviest gun. No, heaviest. Well, unless you've got the KV two, but um, KV two is such a brute. I mean, it just looks like a furniture van on the on top of a tank, doesn't it? It's a quite odd thing. Um, as as we refer to it in Australia, the refrigerator on top of a tank. Yeah. Yes. In fact, I think our good friend uh, Richard has actually converted that to have the back of one open up to be a refrigerator. Oh, okay. Uh, well, the beer inside that'd be nice. Yeah. Very useful. Yeah. Well, Rick, I'm sure we could probably talk about bolt action for a lot, but we are here to talk about something else today. And I believe that something goes along the lines of one of Warlord's oldest uh, games in its catalog uh, and a game that has been an integral part of the company's development. And of course, that is Hail Caesar. So please tell us about Hail Caesar, the new edition. Yeah, Hail Caesar 2. Um, yes, it's interesting, isn't it? And you see, when we did the first Hail Caesar, I felt that that game was pretty solid. I mean, it was based, it's obviously based on um, Black Powder. Mm-hmm. And it, it, because we'd played Black Powder so much, I think they uh, didn't really have an awful lot of um, problems developing Hail Caesar. I kind of knew where I wanted to go with it. And we played it quite a bit before it was published. So, so I think the rule system was and remains pretty solid. Um, so when Warlord said they wanted to do a second edition, I was determined not to just throw the baby out with the bathwater, yeah. which is very easy to do. It's very easy to mm-hmm. do when people mm-hmm. say, here's a second chance. Go, oh, we can do everything different. Let's do everything different. No, let's keep it the same game and uh, make some incremental in changes. There are a few things that I had changed in, in, in my own games, or we had changed in our own games as we'd played, because we found some aspects of the game um, were underused. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we would adopted a few ideas along the way. Or, or, or incorporated a few ideas along the way, which we just found convenient and which worked. And those were brought forward. I went through them all. In some cases, they were ideas which um, John Stallard's uh, War Games group um, contributed. And uh, in a few cases, they paralleled things we'd been doing. Mm-hmm. So I looked at 
all the options. And um, we we kind of narrowed it down to the ones which seemed very sensible, practical, and which made a genuine improvement to the game. Uh, and uh, I put those in. But they are very small. They are very slight updates to the extent that um, I thought we really, we really needed to add more to that book to make it a good second edition. And so what I did is I incorporated the um, the all the rules for working out points values mm -hmm. and uh, new omulus into the um, into the core book. Now originally they'd been published as part of the omulus books. Yeah. So I incorporated those just to really just to add some value to that book. And then we added in two whole new update sections. There's one on how to fight, um, I'd say sieges, but really it's assaults onto fortifications. Yeah, because if it's a siege, it, you know, month one, month two, month three. Yeah, it, 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 they're not all that exciting. Yeah. If you, you can play them as games, but you have to play them in abstract. And yeah. um, perhaps they're better done in terms of a board game or something like that. Um, certainly when I've played those kind of siege games as war games, all that long-term besieging has been done in abstract away from the table. And what you actually play is an assault on the, uh, on the fortification, um, which might be modified to some extent by the pre-battle. Um, can also be done as a card game. You know, you, you know, defender chooses some card options, attacker chooses card options, uh, and you play them out before the game, and that will then determine either the setup or the advantage. You know, have you got tunnels? Have you got siege engines prepared, and so on and so forth. But the important part is always going to be that tabletop war game. So that's mm -hmm. what I did with Hail Caesar too. I just provided some rules for fighting in breaches, assaulting walls. Um, and fighting within the fortifications themselves. Uh, and that was it all fairly easily done because we played games like that. Yeah. Um, so we'd had to evolve those kind of rules. Um, in some cases, they're almost not rules, they're conventions. It's like when you've got a big unit that's got a, a, a tabletop footprint of, um, let's say, about um, a, a 300 millimeters by about 40 millimeters the minute you take that up into a tower or onto walls or into a built-up environment it's impractical yeah. you have to break it up so what i did is i uh, uh, and this is what we'd done exactly what we'd done when we played our own siege games is as soon as that unit becomes a um uh, uh, an interior unit it's you know, it's moved within the fortifications you just exchange it for single figures. Now, in most cases, we might have enough single figures within the unit to just use those. In other cases, we'd actually have a, a few models aside and we'd use those instead. Um, so there is an extent to which if you've tailored your unit specifically to play Hail Caesar with big blocks, you're having to find some extra models. But in most cases, we, we never... When we, when we created Hail Caesar, we built that game to play with forces we already had. And a lot of our armies included single figures or wants, you know, or, or things broken down into little bases of three or two because we were playing other games where you needed to take individual figure casualties, particularly Warhammer Ancient Battles. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't a problem for us. And I thought, well, if you really want to play those kind of games, you're going to have to make a bit of an effort to provide additional figures if you if you don't already have figures broken down. But so many people do. You know, they have fig mm -hmm. they'll play Hail Caesar with um, a big base, but single figures put onto the base, mm -hmm. often on round bases, and then they'll play a different game with those round bases. You know, the sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, whether that's a warlord games game or something else i think saga is often played like that uh and i don't know i i don't personally like that because you tend to end up with the figures on the big bases very far apart you know you, you've got a round mm -hmm. base that's maybe 25 mil and then a space and another round base that's 25 mil and so on and so forth and the figures all look a little bit like a, they're in skirmish formation to me exactly right 
yeah, yeah. Whereas you really want them to be shield to shield. Yeah, um, they they do end up looking a little bit like they're in a line dance. Uh, yeah, configuration. They <laughs> Everyone uh, boot scooting to the left um, because they have that space between them. But of course, if you actually looked at that on a real battlefield, of course, as you say, they would be shield to shield, if not closer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They'd be well. You shield, but really, if you shielded heavy infantry, you know your line infantry, you you'll fight with your shield overlapping the next guy's shield, and you might move up in something like a three foot formation, but you can close up to about eighteen inches. I think people were smaller in those days. Well, Brad, I know a lot of people who wouldn't fit into eighteen inches, but a standard pike formation is something like eighteen inches. You, you know, you, you you side on to the enemy. And the next guy is right close to you. Um, and, that, and that's kind of how the ancients fought to a large extent. Yeah, uh, a, a hoplite or even a, even Romans, where people expect them to be fighting as shieldmen. Really, the the, the shield is, 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 is quite, is, is covering your whole frontage. And that, that sword is darting in from behind the shield. Yeah. You know, you're not waving it around like a maniac. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, anyway, so there's that um, element to it. Uh, uh, and the other element was the, the other new thing which I included in, um, in Hail Caesar was I updated the rules to, uh, to take account of developments in warfare in the 13th century. That's right. Up to the end of the 15th century, really. So uh, early firearms and the um, what they call the infantry revolution, the preponderance of uh, or the dominance of um, infantry fighting in close formation usually with pole arms of some sort like halberds mm-hmm. um, and pikes um, to which you have to kind of have some specific rules uh, I know that the ancients include pikes but really ancient warfare the pikes in ancient warfare are rather different they tend to be longer and they tend to be used in those hoplite type formations or very dense hoplite formations whereas in some swiss warfare from the 13th century onwards the they 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 fight in smaller blocks often 10 by 10 blocks 10 men by 10 men blocks um Hmm. which have the ability they're almost like small squares I was going to say, it sounds very symmetrical. Yeah, they are. And they did that specifically because it means they, 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 they can face any direction and still present the same kind of formation. Ancient Sarissa based pipe blocks didn't do that. The, the guy at the front was very much the guy at the front. Mm-hmm. And the, um, uh, the guys at the back were file closers. You know, they were very much the guys at the back and their role was to stop the guys in front of them turning around and running away as much as anything else so they were like the uh, they were like the, the corporals the, the, if you like the um uh, the second in command and the as you were going to say the commissar for a second <laughs> yes they're all on with pistols it'll get you you know we'll we'll go forward it's like it's just very soviet isn't it yeah there's um, a maximum uh you know 100 mile 100 yards back and if anyone takes one step yes. back yeah, and if the guy at the the, the guy the guy at the front is killed you will pick up his sarissa <laughs> exactly yeah i never thought of that <laughs> yeah um, one guy gets a sword one guy gets a shield yes, what happens next yeah sorry i've been watching uh too much enemy of the gates sorry yeah about that. yeah uh but um uh with um uh with these these 14th century say swiss kind of formations you know they were much more flexible and the infantry were um they fought with a lot more determination. You know, they, they were there. They, they, they knew they were, they're semi-professional troops, even when they were um, uh, not literally professional troops, you know, they were very well trained and drilled and they could see off cavalry um, quite easily. So it changed the whole nature of warfare. And when you it combine that with um, uh, early firearms and development of firearms and cannons on the battlefield, again, it changed the nature of warfare quite, quite, dramatically um also changed the nature of um uh fortifications of course and, and it did that more more uh, earlier mm. than it did battlefield for uh, i mean the i think the earliest cannons on the battlefield are something like um well cressy is the one that comes to mind which i think 1340 
six, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. But before then, you'd had cannons mounted in towers uh, and, and towers built specifically to carry cannons. So, um, yeah, it, it, so, so, so it's quite different. So I thought it, it needed a entire new set of um, new set of rules, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did you how are some of the actual mechanics different? I mean, we don't need to get super nitty gritty, but what were some of the changes that you put into place to take into account all of these, um, you know, technological differences that you're talking about? Yeah, I think one of the, one of them actually deals with the uh, difference between um, the way that initiative works. Mm. Initiative for um, uh, originally was always if an enemy within twelve inches, then you can make a then you can make a, a single order move really before everything else is given orders. Well, I changed that for um, very light troops and skirmishers, so that as long as you've got enemy in sight, you can make an initiative move. And that's very useful because it means you don't get skirmishers stuck in the middle of um, the battlefield. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it also means that units which are uh, dissociated from their command become a little bit more functional when they're the skirmisher or light cavalry types. Um, and that was suggested and we've tried to, and it does work very well. I think we tried something very similar with bolt action and that's sort of where it comes from to some extent. Mm. Um, so, so you've got that. Uh, as a new rule, which 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 I, I think works uh, pretty well. Um, other things are just extensions of existing rules. So the close uh, there's a close ranks rule whereby mm-hmm. um, heavy infantry with shields could always close ranks and basically fight defensively, and that's a that's almost like the um, minus one to hit plus one defense kind of concept. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was only heavy infantry with shields that could do it, i.e., something like a Roman. Uh, 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 formation a legionary formation or even a dark age formation could do it if you wanted uh, but you couldn't do it if you were medium if you were unarmored infantry you know it's on medium mm-hmm. infantry types and really there's no logic to that because the medium infantry really fight exactly the same as heavy infantry they just fight less less well yeah. and that uh, you, you get them more in biblical armies where the level of armor is less generally um so um, I just extended that rule out to include medium infantry or basically all close fighting infantry, which makes a lot more sense. Um, so that's different. Um, I added a few special orders to the uh, uh, general as well, because I thought that was handy. One to move all your army at once order, which people asked for. Um, so rather than having to move the entire army division by division, the general can say, right, the entire army is going to move. And it limits what you can do. You can only go forward one move, but it allows you to do that slow move into advance as an entire army, if you want. Uh, and I say that was something people wanted. They felt that the an army becoming dissociated early on, especially in the first move of the game, seemed a little out of um, kilter. I have to say, not entirely unrealistic. Can happen. Um, you know, the more you read about um, not just ancient warfare, but medieval battles and even more mm-hmm. um, uh, more historically recent uh, battles um, in the 18th and uh, uh, 19th centuries, you know, you've still got the same kind of warfare going on. It, you, know, you go onto a battlefield and two armies line up and fight. It's not like a modern war. Where it doesn't. Where that, you don't get that kind of thing. But um, you still get cases where... Um, one end of an army does something spectacularly stupid or, or goes off on one or react, overreacts or misinterprets its order. Um, uh, you know, and it's not unrealistic. And I, I think the, sometimes people are a little bit reluctant to accept that in warfare, things really never quite go as expected. Mm-hmm. What's yeah. the old expression? No plan survives contact with the enemy. Yes. Sometimes no plan con- survives contact with your friends. This is even worse. <laughs> exactly. Or uh, what did Mike Tyson say? Uh, everyone's got a plan till they get punched in the mouth. So um, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. Well, that's you know, it. even in World War Two, you get these things where um, you get what the Americans call blue on blue, mm-hmm. you know, where where a friendly plane goes over and everyone goes, oh my, oh my lord, it's it's the enemy and shoots at it. 
just so common. Happened all the time. Uh, or vice versa. Yeah. Well, vice play. versa, where an airplane yeah. formation is going to go oversee some enemy below them and think, oh, that's the guys who need to bomb and you end up bombing your own side. Yeah. It, happens, it happened all the time in World War II. Um, and that's in a, an environment where you have much better communications. Um, and it, you get a similar thing in ancient warfare where people mistake shields or, or people pick up an enemy shield and try to sneak. I think it's in the Battle of Cremona where... A, some guys uh, thinks a beaten legion are trying to basically escape and they just pick up the shields of the uh, of the enemy and try and sneak away <laughs> uh, because who who knows who knows what the, they all look the same you know they're all roman mm -hmm. legionaries uh, yeah so they, you know, these things happen um so, so I, did, I did a few new rules the, the other new rule i think was a um, allows the general to basically recover a uh, unit from a broken brigade um, which I've used a few times, but it's not really a, it's not a particularly um, a useful rule. It's one of these things which is occasionally really useful, but only yeah. occasionally. Only occasionally, exactly. Yeah. And it's well, exactly. Um, but those are the rules that sort of get into moving forward into the future. Um, you did mention that you tweaked um, a few rules in the core army rules set of the game itself for hail caesar um i know that one of the ones that i've heard you talk about in the past is i believe a fan recommendation could be from the gaming group you talked about before which was when a unit's being charged in the rear they have a chance of turning around and facing the people yeah. who are charging them isn't guaranteed but they have a chance yeah and even if they do it they become disordered that's right. So it's a um, uh, uh, yes, it, it is, and it, it. The reason I I like that. In, the reason I adopted that in the end, what I liked about it was that there are some situations where units get taken in the flank, where the actual juxtaposition of the units becomes very messy, and um, because this allows that unit to then potentially turn, even at a disadvantage. It just neatens the game up a bit. You don't get these T shapes. Yeah, um, you still can get them, you know, and they and they're inevitably fairly devastating for the unit that's been taken in the flank. And even if it manages to turn, it's fairly devastating because you, even though you're now fighting with your full, um, your full attack value rather than your half attack value, um, you you still, still minus sorted. one. You're still disordered, yeah. so you you're not likely to win. You and you can because disorder is a minus one, and you're usually hitting on fours. You're now hitting on fives. Hitting on fives with um, a, a normal attack, which would be um, uh, six six normally, is you're not making enough attacks to play the odds. So on average, it's two hits, but mm -hmm. it can very easily be none. Whereas with four, you're more likely to play the odds. And with three, the odds start to, it, it's more, the more likely you are to hit, the fewer dice attacks you need to make the odds average. I can never do the maths on this. It's quite difficult. <laughs> uh, generally speaking, you don't get average an average, a predictable average result on a four, five, six until you've got something like 30 to 40 dice yeah. but after which you know it's almost invariably going to be 50 50 um roll one dice it's completely random two dice meh you know and so on and so forth the more dice you roll the more predictable the result exactly but the higher number you're going for i.e let's say you go for a one in six chance then the higher that number has to be so even though it seems like allowing the unit to turn is quite a big deal and quite an advantage because of the way the dice work and because the guys that are making the um, advance into that flank will be hitting on threes it becomes actually not that it's not that big a change in terms of the way it affects the gameplay mm -hmm. it just neatens everything up so i quite like it yeah are there any other rules like that i know as you say it may not be the most you know, consequential on the tabletop, but some of those uh, cleanups that 
you know, folks who have played Hail Caesar in the past are looking for before they jump in. I know, obviously, you've talked about the inclusion of the point system. You've talked about the inclusion of army lists. You've yeah. talked about the inclusion of the siege or attack rules. You've talked about you know moving things into the future. But for those who are interested in playing the game as they have it right now, I mean, there are a number of small but significant rules changes um, now that's one of them. Can you give us an example of perhaps another thing that's changed from you know, you know, the I previous edition to this one? I can't remember any of the others we made that were significant. I changed the way pikes work slightly. Mm. Um, and um, I th the, there's quite a few changes in terms of the terrain. Yes. We, we expanded the terrain section out massively. Now, that again, this was something the guys at Warlord were very keen on doing. And Darren... Um, uh, and um, uh, the team generally, they're really into um, pike-based armies. They they like the Wars of the Successors and particularly the Wars of Pyrrhus. Um, so they're plainly obsessed by um, uh, the rules for pikes. <laughs> mm -hmm. So they felt that a lot of the terrain rules didn't properly reflect the way that pikes had to deal with um, uh, broken terrain. And I thought, well, yeah, okay, I can, I can kind of see it. But the trouble is, you do start to write quite a lot of rules just for pikes, because that's mm -hmm. the way of the of the beast. So um, uh, we we had a chat, and they they explained how they do, uh, the rules that they like to use for all this sort of thing. And I thought, well, that's quite complicated. So I, I, I worked them over and tried to make them a little bit more hom uh, homologous. Mm -hmm. They were a little bit if this then that, and I thought, well, you need a principle, you know. Yeah. Uh, and we did that. So there are. The, so we've expanded the terrain section out, not just for pikes, but we've expanded the terrain section out to include all sorts of different terrain. So, uh, so rather than just woods, we've kind of gone for light woods, a medium kind of woodland, and then a dense woodland. Yeah. As well as a very dense woodland, which is just you know he can't go in here. There you go. Um. And they've done the same for broken ground. We've done the same for most things. Um, and along the way, I included um, some extra rules for uh, moving over uh, and dealing with bridges and fords, because there's always been this slightly slight niggle in in um, in uh, Caesar that if you've got a bridge, a unit can't get over it in formation. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I kind of you have to deal with it in a slightly abstract way. Um, so I I actually use the same rules as I use for attacking breaches because you have the same problem with breaches. Because yeah. your model breach is going to be about, what, you know, two or three inches wide. And a unit's typically a foot wide. Mm -hmm. or, or eight, ten inches, something like that. So it, 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 what I did was I basically used the same rules for both sieges and for going over bridges, i.e. fighting into a narrow space. Because it... Previously, you couldn't you couldn't actually charge <laughs> if you were in a in a column formation, <laughs> and mm -hmm. you couldn't get over a bridge unless you were in column formation. So if somebody sat on a bridge, you could you had to find some sort of compromise. Um, so we worked that one out, and uh, I I've done rules for that uh, specifically as part of the of the terrain section. And um, other than that, I I did slightly change the way the pike rules work to include some. Uh, uh, to, to make them a little bit less flexible, um, mm. so that they, they, they can't just move, they can't just change direction in quite the way that they used to be able to. Um, and I think that, that's the that's one of the biggest changes actually, because, because it's a whole new section. But I don't imagine it's something people will use in its entirety. They'll... I mean, that's the thing with terrain, though, right? Mm. I mean, not every tabletop has every type of terrain, not unless you're playing on a very confusing battlefield. Uh, typically, you'll see several types of that terrain on a tabletop, and you'll use part of that section. But that's kind of the great thing about terrain, because as you vary it between games, it leads you to having different gaming experiences and adds to the replayability of the game. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, it, it's one of those things that... Um does allow variation but most people most of the time won't want to use that 
They'll, mm. in ancient war games in particular, like to have a big flat table. I don't know why. Mm. Um, but they do. Uh, which is why I don't play many straight up um, encounter battles as ancient uh, games. Mostly if, when we play ancient or uh, or early medieval, but uh, it, it, the Perry twins are more into early medieval, you know, so um, I'm more likely to be playing um, uh, either a, a kind of a Korean Korean War, let's just say um, uh, Japan and Korea, mm. uh, uh, a, a, a kind of early medieval Japanese game, sort of samurai, or um, uh, early uh, early medieval, um, I say early medieval, um, kind of crusades era. That, that's the sort of thing they enjoy. And the other one is um, Wars of the Roses or Burgundian Wars, mm-hmm. which is at the other end, really. You're talking the mid-15th century. Exactly. Yeah. So we tend to play those kind of games, but they're always they're always a setup. So there'll be something like, um, uh, you know, Queen, Queen Margaret has been escorted towards Shrewsbury uh, with the artillery train, mm-hmm. and they're just they're they're crossing a river. They've half crossed the river, and they're halfway towards the Shrewsbury, which is the town gate at the other end of the wall. And meanwhile, it's intercepted by. Um, uh, uh, say some cavalry coming at the other end with some infantry following behind and the battle will fight like that over an eight, over a 14 foot by 6 table so you're not dealing with two sides lining up and going, you're dealing with a side that's got to get its artillery across the ford or recover the artillery that's been um, that's fallen in the ford in one game we played and um, you know, and where you have to get a specific character into a specific place or capture a specific character and, and so the game will have a narrative quality to it, and we almost always fight games like that. Well, Rick, uh, there is a common misconception with this game that I want to address before we start moving on. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend on the weekend about Hail Caesar coming out, and they said, "Oh, it's just the game." about Romans. It's in the name. Hail Caesar, right? It's, <laughs> it's only about Romans. If you've listened this far, you probably know that that is absolutely not the case. But can you talk to us a little bit about the scope of this game? Because it it is a, a wide-spanning game that sure. covers a number of um, time periods and uh, places in the world. Yeah, I, I mean, Hail, I called it Hail Caesar. Uh, but uh, in reality, it's a generic set of ancient war games rules yeah. with some very specific adaptions for the weaponry and tactics of specific periods that you can incorporate. So the core rule set um, covers warfare from the earliest times. I mean, I think the earliest list I have is Sumerian. Um, so you, you mid-Bronze Age, early yeah. Bronze Age, really, early, right through to... Um, uh, and the original rule set, I, I decided I wouldn't include any specific adaptions for anything beyond, um, I said 1250. It's like the Mongol invasions and the rise of infantry, the development of the longbow in England and uh, Western Europe, uh, and, and the beginning of the, the use of firearms. Those things changed warfare quite dramatically. So I thought I'd draw a line at that point and um, uh, and. and Perhaps do that separately later. And in fact, I've now expanded that with uh, uh, some specific adaptions. Mm. Um, the um, whole notion of the game was really that we play a, a ancient war game. Could be ancient Egyptians, could be Romans, could be Greeks, could be Persians, could be uh, you know right up until um, uh, the Crusades, um, and. We play it as a multiplayer game, and normally that's how I play Hell Caesar. It's designed to be a multiplayer game, so you have two or three people on each side, and usually quite big armies. You can play it as a single-player game. Many people do and enjoy it, but the idea is it's almost like a club game. Yeah. Um, because that's how I play. I, I don't write war games in abstract for a commercial purpose. I write games I like to play, mm-hmm. um, and that's how I play war games. Very rarely play one on one. I sometimes do. I play Alessio one on one sometimes at bolt action, 
Um, occasionally I play Nigel Stillman one-on-one uh, -on -one at something. Um, but more often than not, we'll be playing with two or sometimes three players on each side um, with a beer. And you're not there to play a war game. You're there to have an evening with your mates, drink beer, uh, dare I say, talk nonsense, and uh, roll, roll dice and push toy soldiers around. And the game is a is why you're doing it. It's why you get together. Is it? <laughs> it's the whole purpose. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it, it's it's not a competition. It's a uh, social experience. Yeah. So who wins and who loses might be the object. Might be a, a, a good cause for um, uh, more banter and Mickey taking. <laughs> but it's not the whole purpose of the evening. Exactly. Sometimes we play games that, um, especially if we're playing a campaign. Where actually one side's going to win, you can see which side's going to win from the beginning, and the whole question becomes the uh, how how well you, how good a defence you can put up, mm -hmm. um, and what you can get away with. And in campaign terms, that's often important because it allows more time for enforcements to come up, or it allows for uh, uh, units which have been engaged to be uh, to re to escape, and so on, or manoeuvre to a new position. Um, and, and that's kind of uh, uh, those are the sort of games we play. So Hail Caesar is built for those sort of games, mm -hmm. um, multiplayer game. Uh, having said that, the new uh, one of the things we didn't cover earlier was that uh, in the new edition, I have included a section on playing so uh, playing one on one, which I forgot to mention. Um, and really, it just modifies the rules slightly, so there's less verbal reliance because in in, in the um, core game, and this is one of the most important things about Hail Caesar, you explain, you have to give orders verbally. So you have to stand up and explain what your troops are going to do, both to the enemy and to your fellow players. And this gives you the opportunity for your fellow players to put their, their hands in their head and go, oh my God, you can't try and do that. Oh, whatever. No, no, don't do that. So you have an element of the interaction. And the other side to go, yes, yes, do that. Oh, I don't think you should do that. And he'll never manage that. Oh, yeah, if you're hard enough. You know, there's a level of verbal interaction in the game, which is entirely deliberate. Well, you don't get that one-on-one. -on -one. No. So the whole process of saying what you're going to be doing and then rolling the dice to see to what extent you achieved it takes the tension out of the... It takes the tension out of the dice roll because the it's suddenly not quite so it's not quite so drastic that you haven't got you haven't got your your mates behind you mm -hmm. or indeed the enemy in on mass in front of you and so I, I i changed it slightly i made it actually more like the war master system whereby you roll make one move roll make a further move roll make up to three moves mm -hmm. rather than making a single roll to see how many moves you get yeah. uh, and that's how war master plays um so and, and of course Hail Caesar is derived from Warmaster, which many players might remember. It's an old Games Workshop game I, I wrote in the year 2000. Gosh. Remember it fondly. Love Gosh, it. a century ago nearly. Yes. But I loved that about that game because it felt like you were pushing your luck. It's How a, badly do you need this? Yes. And then you would go, gambling. So the tension, again? the tension's different. It's a gamble yeah. every turn. So you get exactly. the, and then you, so you do get the tension and the excitement, but it, it's in a format of that one gamble after another day, you roll the dice again, or I'm going to leave my troops in this exposed position. Oh Lordy, mm -hmm. I've failed. That, always. Yes. Um, worse with, um, uh, with Hail Caesar and Black Powder, that, that dice roll is, is all in one single d6 roll um so that's kind of what hail caesar is it, it, it's it's a ideally it's sweet spot is as a club-based game played uh, with large fairly large forces on a fairly big table you can play it and it's designed so you can play it on small a table as small as six foot by four foot with mm -hmm. modest forces one on one i wouldn't say it's its sweet spot a lot of people do enjoy that though so um i i shouldn't uh I was going to say, I know a lot of people that play it that way and love yeah. it that way, Rick. Yeah. I, and the reason I didn't design it that way is because I'd, I'd already written Warhammer Ancient Battles. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Warhammer Ancient Battles had um, 
uh, it was was being um, discontinued by Games Workshop, mm -hmm. and everyone was trying to find successor to Warhammer Ancient Battles, and there were two or three games that came out that were just Warhammer Ancient Battles sort of rewritten, mm -hmm. um, and I thought, well, what's the point in me doing that? Done it once. Yeah. There's all these other games people who are passionate Warhammer Ancient Battles players are coming out with their versions of the game. Mm -hmm. If they're if they're passionate Warhammer Ancient Battles players, let them do that. I'm quite happy to. And meanwhile, write something that comes from or stems from my own preferences and experience. Exactly. Um, and builds on that um, concept. And also it makes use of that same gaming concept we used in Black Powder. So there was a, a kind of family yeah. uh, of games. Yeah. There you go. Our time is coming to a close, sadly. But if you are interested in this new edition of Hail Caesar, you can get the rulebook on the Warlord Games website right now. It is it is live. It is this is not a pre-order episode. You can buy it today. And uh, many fine independent retailers that sell Warlord products will have it on its on their shelves as well. Um, you can get the second ed book. You can also get from directly from Warlord a special edition that has uh, gilt um, pages and is very fancy and is even signed by the man, the myth, the legend. You might have heard of him, Rick Priestley. Uh, you can get that. Uh, they also have quite a few army deals currently on the Warlord website. And if you have one of the forces that Rick was talking about before that happens to be on round bases, they have a bunch of conversion trays that allow you to take your existing round base models um, and rank them up into the proper formations for this game so you can enjoy it multiple ways. But Rick, it is always an absolute pleasure to talk to you sir uh, i am glad to see that you still have uh iron uh, steel in the game what's the expression uh, skin in the game <laughs> in the game thank you and uh you are still uh getting your hot little hands into all sorts of projects um are we allowed to ask anything else you're working on or is this a secret and we'll see uh, what comes up well I, i'm always happy to help warlord out with any projects they're they're doing but um uh, I really, I, I've, I'm retired now, Brad. I'm, I'm old. I'm worn out. Mm. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I don't think I've got another brand new game in me. I think the last thing I did was Warlords of Era 1 mm -hmm. for Warlord. And um, that was, uh, I, I wanted to do another fantasy game. And this is a, uh, a fantasy game that uses the bolt action core mechanic. Yeah. Um, and which I was really quite pleased with, you know. And again, it's it's the what I like doing rather than what the commercial world demands doing game. Yeah. But at the same time, I found it much harder to do than I thought I would, um, because mm. largely because my friends don't really play fantasy. I know that you say you're retired, but uh, having enjoyed the fruits of your retirement as an avid Warlords of Erewhon player. And now, of course, you've had your fingers in this. Hopefully, uh, there will be a couple more Rick Priestley projects in the works. I know you say you don't have another game in you, but yeah. on behalf well, well, of all the fans out here, Rick, let me say we believe in you. Well, I, I mean a commercial game, really. I mean, I'm still designing things, and I'm still putting games together in my own time um, for the fun of it. Mm, I, I I hope there's more to this, Rick. I look forward to uh, hearing what the mad scientist is up to. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> well, again, thank you for coming on. Um, yeah, thanks, Brad. Always, always a pleasure to catch up with you. And you, sir. And you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for joining us tonight for two old friends talking about uh, great games and good times. We hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, we did have quite a few requests uh, for us to cover Hail Caesar. And I figured if we were going to talk to anyone, it had to be the author himself. So if you have any other requests for the Warlord Games podcast, please go to the podcast network that this podcast is found on, Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. 
If you search that up on Facebook, you will find the Cast Dice Facebook page. If you message that page, you will get me. Hi, my name is Brad, and uh, you are guaranteed a response. And I absolutely take all of your requests seriously. And uh, quite a few Warlord episodes have come directly from you, the fans, and we look forward to hearing from you to hear your thoughts about what you would like in the future. As I mentioned earlier, I did have many requests for me to ask Rick about bolt action, which we did. But ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us here at the Warlord Games podcast. We look forward to hearing from you coming soon. Until then, we hope that you are safe and having fun. Have a good night.